I was at a conference one time leading a, um, a seminar called Jesus Among Other Options. And uh, in the seminar, um, uh, you know, we talked about Christianity, of course, but we also talked about Buddhism. We talked about Islam. We talked about um, just sort of secular atheism, skepticism. And we were kind of comparing these different worldviews and talking about what Jesus might have to offer, what Jesus might have to say into these other worldviews. And, uh, and after the seminar, this uh, young man, he was a grad student, uh, he was an aeronautical engineer, very, very brilliant. He's probably working at NASA now. Um, and uh, he was an international student. He was from India. And he came to me and he started telling me that he has been beginning to fall in love with Jesus and all these ways in which Jesus had been meeting him, all these particular ways that he was kind of enumerating for me. And I'm like, that's awesome, man. Wow, that's great. And uh, he said, yeah, but here's the problem. He said, um, when I go back home, my parents have, um, well, we have these like little statues. We have these gods in our home, and we, you know, we burn incense, and we pray, and, and this sort of thing. And they, I mean, like, if, if I don't participate in that, um, it, it would actually hurt them really badly. Um, and as a preacher, it was like, this is my lucky day. Because I, I've never been able to actually tell somebody to turn from their idols and serve the true and living God and have it be a literal thing. Uh, but, you know, I, I, no, I, was, I was a little bit more gentle than that. But, uh, but I explained to them what Jesus is talking about in this passage, that, that nothing can rival the place of Jesus. And, and really the interesting thing for this guy is he didn't, he didn't believe in these idols. He didn't believe in these gods. What was his idol? His parents' opinion, right? That's what he was wrestling with. That was the thing that he wasn't sure that he wanted to compromise for the sake of Jesus. Let me pray for us and um, we'll get into this morning. Father in heaven, I pray that um, there would be a revelation in this place by, the, by your Holy Spirit's power of anything that's seeking to rival in our lives the place that only you should have. Amen. Cool thing is, is that that guy ended up following Jesus in a really brave way. It had a great ending. Um, well, if you would please turn immediately with, with me to Luke 18. That's on page 877 of your pew Bible. This is um, commonly called the... Um, the, uh, the story of the rich young ruler, right? And uh, it occurs in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, it's, it's really one of the most challenging passages in all the Bible, right? I mean, for example, I don't know of any other place in all the scriptures where Jesus actually asks somebody to follow him, um, and, uh, and, and they essentially say no, Right? I mean, the call is so high, this guy essentially says no. He basically personally opts out of eternal life. And Jesus doesn't like, you know, like run after him and like sort of soften his message and say, I was just joking. No, he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Right? I mean, what if, we, what if, what if our Baptist churches did altar calls that way, right? With all heads bowed and all eyes closed... <laughs> I want you to raise your hand 
if you're willing to sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. But I, I don't know how many hands we'd have shoot up in the air if that was the case, right? But it's, it's also the only passage I know of where Jesus actually asks somebody to do that. Right? Where Jesus actually tells me, it's the only passage I know of. I mean, Jesus has radical things to say about money. But it's the only passage I know of where Jesus actually tells somebody, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. So, I mean, what's up with that? Is Jesus just sort of being hard on this guy? Um, well, one thing we know is that Jesus, it wasn't because Jesus didn't love him. It wasn't because Jesus was like, I don't like this guy, he's rich, I don't like the look on his face or something like that. Um, we, get, we get different details about this story in the, in the various synoptic gospels. And actually, there's this, there's this beautiful little detail um, in, in the Gospel of Mark's version, chapter 10, where he says, uh, it says that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Right? He looked at the man and loved him. It's just this, this beautiful window into what's going on sort of behind the scenes in Jesus' heart in this story, right? He's got a heart of compassion. He, he doesn't want this guy to walk away sad. He's not like, yeah, man, I'm radical, and you couldn't handle it. <laughs> He wants to give this guy the kingdom of God. He, he invites him in to, to, to follow him. He invites him to be this, this, this intimate friend of his. Who knows, who knows the stories that this guy would have had in history if he would have said yes? You know, he could have been right there next to Peter. He could have been right there next to Thomas. So Jesus wasn't longing to reject, reject this guy. And... Um, he doesn't long to reject any of us. Some of you guys might be super devoted to Jesus. Some of you guys might be seekers. There might be skeptics in here. And Jesus' heart, Jesus' disposition towards you is a heart of love. He wants to receive you. He wants to receive you. Jesus, that, that's his heart. But, but here's the thing. Jesus is not willing to change what it means to be a disciple in order to accommodate our idols. Right? He's, he's not going to change the definition of what this call looks like in order to accommodate some other God. <clears throat> this man seemed like an impressive guy. He was rich, extremely rich, it says in verse 23. We also learn in Matthew's gospel that he was a young man. And here in Luke we learn that he was a ruler. So, I mean, this guy was a triple threat, man. <laughs> right? He was young, he was rich, he was powerful. And he seemed to be pretty religious, too, didn't he? I mean, if there was ever a man by the standards of the world who seemed like a good candidate for eternal life, it would be this guy, right? But as impressive as he was, he was wrong about three important things. He was wrong about Jesus, he was wrong about himself, and he was wrong about salvation. And so let's take some time to walk through the story together and unpack each of these. All right, so first of all, he was wrong about Jesus. In verse 18, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this, this, this good teacher, this is the title that he wants to ascribe to Jesus. Like many in our day, there are many who are ready enough to think of Jesus as a good teacher. You know, on par with somebody like a, like a Socrates or a Confucius, right? 
Now, that's true enough. Jesus certainly was a good teacher. He wasn't any less than that. But if he's only just this kind of good human teacher that's fallible like the rest of us, I doubt you'd sell the farm to follow him. Right? And this guy doesn't. He has a wrong view of Jesus. And so Jesus challenges this designation. He responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now we need to tread carefully here because if taken in isolation, this verse seems like Jesus is denying both his own goodness and his own divinity. Doesn't it sound a little bit like that? But the problem with this interpretation is that it makes no sense of the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Right? Because, I mean, some of you guys have been walking through this. We've been going through this for almost, in, in Easter, a little after Easter, it'll be two years. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. And he's already said all kinds of incredible things about himself. He says that he has the authority to forgive sins. So not, not, just, not just like when somebody wrongs him, but any sins. You wrong you, and Jesus forgives you. And the Jews, they rightly knew that that was an authority that belonged to God alone. They said, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus has already told us that he's going to be the one who will return and judge the world. He'll judge the living and the dead. That's what, that's what we say in the creed every week. It's because Jesus said that's what he's going to do. Jesus um, claimed to be the unique son of God. So he says, nobody knows the Father except the Son, and nobody knows the Son except the Father, and whoever the Son reveals them to. So there's this, it's not just like, eh, we're all kind of sons and daughters in God. No, there's this unique sonship there with Jesus. And then in the last, um, in the last story in the Gospel of Luke, uh, and Luke obviously knows that he's headed there, um, Jesus is literally worshipped by his monotheistic disciples. Right? And so if there was ever a time that Jesus like, want, you know, should have clarified that he wasn't divine, you know, that, that would have been a good time. Right? Um, so we need to decide what we really think about Jesus. Is he Lord, liar, or lunatic? Right? Nobody puts this issue more poignantly than C.S. Lewis. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him that they're ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but they don't accept his claim to be God. He says, that's the one thing that we must never say. Lewis goes on to explain that a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He says, make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall, on, uh, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So when Jesus says to this man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Seems like what's actually going on here is Jesus is challenging this guy. He's wanting to kind of fish for his perspective. Why, why are you calling me good? No one's good except God alone. Are you willing to ascribe to me the kind of absolute goodness that belongs to God alone? That would be the right perspective. 
Jesus knew that this man had a wrong view of his identity. Second, the man was wrong about himself. Jesus says in verse 20, if you look with me there, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Notice that Jesus is actually listing some of the Ten Commandments here. So, um, you know, the man says, all these I've kept from my youth. In other words, like, child's play, Jesus, are you kidding me? Like, that's the standard? Like, I already got eternal life in your book, right? And um, I think this man clearly had a misunderstanding about himself. I mean, do you think it was really true that he kept all these commandments from his youth? I mean, is there anybody here who's honored their father and their mother from their youth? Is there anybody here who doesn't lie? And then it goes deeper than that because Jesus talks about how it's not just about the outside of the cup. It's about the inside of the cup. You listen to Jesus' moral teachings. He's like, maybe you didn't commit murder, but you've had murderous anger in your heart. Maybe you haven't physically committed adultery, but in your mind you've committed adultery. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have some sort of unforgiveness in your heart and you're not willing to lay that down before the Lord. Jesus is always going with the inside of the cup. Turn back with me, if you would, to um, the story that it comes right before this. There's two little stories that come right before this. And I think Luke lays this out with intentionality. If you look back in, in chapter 18 to verse 9, we see the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And um, Jesus starts this parable. It says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then he goes on to tell this story about two men, right? We looked at this a few weeks ago. Two men, there's, you know, there's, the, tac- there's the Pharisee who's confident. He said, I'm, go- I'm glad I'm not like other men. I'm very, real religious. I do lots of good stuff. And, uh, and I'm glad I'm not like this guy over here. You know? And the tax collector just throws himself on the mercy of the court. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that it's the second man who went home having things right between him and God, right? So this is, this is the tape that's playing in our head as, as we read the story of the rich young ruler. Now, which of these two characters does the rich young ruler remind you of? The one who's throwing himself on the mercy of God or the one who's confident in his own righteousness? And then right after that, we get this story. And actually, this is the story. I I think there's a lot of intentionality here. This is the story that appears right before the rich young ruler in every gospel. So this this story appears in different places in the gospel, but this always comes right before it. Jesus says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So there seems to be some sort of tape. There seems to be some sort of setup. There seems to be some kind of theology that Jesus is trying to get forward to us before we hear this story, right? And what's the point? What's the point here you know, that this, this man, this, he's, he's not the tax collector calling out for mercy. He's not receiving the kingdom of God like, like a little child. He's saying, what must I do? How can I, how can I get there? How can, you know, I've, I've gotten to where I've gotten, you know, rich and young and ruler. I've, I've, do, I've done this on my own strength. How do I get to where you are? And so, um, 
Jesus kind of sees through all this, and he, and he turns up the heat real high on the guy, doesn't he? <laughs> right? He's like, okay, well, let's see. Let's, we should probably humble this guy, right? And he says, well, there's just one thing you still lack. And you better believe at this point this guy's ears perked up. Like, oh, it's like one thing? Okay, like, tell me what it is. <laughs> Jesus says, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So he, he, he says there's one thing you lack, but that one thing includes actually three things. <laughs> so sell all that you have, um, but, but, you know, and, and a lot of times we, we kind of like want to make this like metaphorical, like Jesus was symbolically asking him to sell everything he had. He didn't, he didn't really mean it. But, uh, but when the guy went away sad, Jesus didn't say, no, it's just the symbolic, you know, interpretation you were missing here. Um, and, uh, and then, but he says, not only sell everything you have, but give the money to the poor. So Jesus is actually, lo- is he loving this guy? And he's wanting to love the poor at the same time, Right? He said, don't give the money to your little brother or something like that. Give it away. Give it totally away. Um, and, uh, and then he says, come and follow me. Right? Now, Jesus, I mean, you're gonna, if you're going to have eternal life, Jesus better be in the equation, right? Um, I, I mentioned before, this is the only time that Jesus ever, uh, ever asked somebody directly to sell everything they have, at least in the Gospels. But I don't actually believe that he stopped asking people that. We actually have record throughout church history of many people down through the ages who believe that Jesus has given them the specific call to voluntary poverty. Right? You can think of famous people like St. Francis of Assisi or St. Teresa of Calcutta. There's been many people who have felt like that's been God's radical call on their life. It doesn't... It doesn't stop. It doesn't shut off. But this is the only instance we have of it recorded in the gospel. So we should ask the question, well, why did Jesus make it so hard for this guy? Right? Why did Jesus tell him he had to sell everything, everything he had, and give it to the poor? I'm asking that question for real. Why do you think that's the case? It was an idol to him. Yes, it was an idol to him. What were you going to say, Austin? Uh, like somewhere on the same lines that probably like if you want to set up him we'll just in line simply all only many videos that because he he's so in love with but he doesn't want money that he's not he's not loving Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. And so so two I mean two different perspectives. Like like you're saying the same thing in a different way. It's like Glenn was saying it's it's it was an idol to him. But then the, another way of looking at it to him is it was his primary love. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the thing he loved more than anything else. Right, his wealth. It's idolatry. It's, it's his highest love. And really here we come to a difficult but firm truth that we see throughout the Gospels. And it's this. If you love anything more than Jesus, you can't be his disciple. You, 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 think, you think, hey, that's, that's like a hard thing to say. You shouldn't be saying that in a sermon or something like that. But like, read through the Gospels and tell me if I'm lying. If Jesus says, if you love anything more than me, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot build half a tower. You can't love your parents more than me. You can't love your children more than me. You can't love your wealth more than me. You can't love your home more than me. You can't love your homeland more than me. Right? And really... Um, it's, it's pretty clear to me that Jesus 
had this guy's number from the get-go. Right? So it's, you know, Jesus is kind of going through this like a little bit of a Socratic discussion, but I believe he had Jesus, this guy's number from the get-go. You know why I think that? I'll tell you why. <laughs> so back in verse 20, Jesus is listing these commandments. And he's like, you know, um, you know, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. He lists commandments number five through nine. These are oftentimes called the ethical commandments. They're the commandments that have to do with um, the way that we relate to other people. But what's the one ethical commandment he left off? Yes, covetousness, number 10. He doesn't say, you know, coveting your possessions. You know, he, he kind of holds that one back just for a little bit, right? And, and so then this guy's like, uh-oh, okay, that's good. And Jesus is like, um, tick, tick, tick. <laughs> because that was this guy's issue, right? Covetousness. And, and actually it says elsewhere in the New Testament that coveting is a, is a kind of idolatry. That greed is a kind of idolatry. It's this really unique sin in the Ten Commandments, right? Because the Ten Commandments, they're a lot about action and activity. But covetousness is, is, an, is something that's going on in your heart, right? A lot of murder happens because of covetousness, right? A lot of adultery happens because you're coveting somebody else's wife or whatever. It's, it's, it's an internal state. It's an inside-of-the-cup thing. And we also see that Jesus kind of, in, in an interesting way, when he's listing the Ten Commandments, he doesn't list the theological, he doesn't list the religious ones, the first four that talk about, right, you shall have no other God before me. Right, this is, this is the great commandment. This is, where, this is where all the sin flows from, when we have another God before Jesus, when we have another God before the Father. And so... Um, you know, the, these, you know, don't make idols, you know, uh, you know, don't misuse his name, keep the Sabbath holy. All these things have to do with having God have first place in your life. And so Jesus sort of withheld these back into this moment um, where, he, where he, you know, um, he's so far off my notes, I don't even know where I am anymore. <laughs> um, So, I think, the, I, I think one of the interesting things about this story is, um, is that, in a way, this guy admits that Jesus is right. Doesn't he? I mean, because he becomes very sad. Like, why would he become, like, really sad if he knew that Jesus hadn't put his finger on something that was real? Right? I mean, if Jesus said... Um, there's one thing that you lack, and the guy's like, yes, and he's like, take archery lessons, and then come and follow me. Right? I mean, this, this guy, he might not follow Jesus at that point, right? He's like, I don't know about this guy. This, this rabbi's a little crazy. But, but he wouldn't become sad, right? Why is he sad? Is because he knows somewhere in his heart, he agrees somewhere in his heart, he's convicted within that he really has put money in front of God. That he really does have a covetous heart toward it. And how about you? Like what if, you know, you were walking around and you ran into Jesus and you were talking to him and you're like, I really want eternal life. You know? And he said, well, there's just one thing you want. And he turned and looked at you. What would that one thing be for you? What would that one thing that he would put his finger on 
and say, you know what, this is kind of rivaling your love for your creator. Could be money like this guy. It could be, you know, the ability to define your own sexual identity and practices. It could be alcohol or some other addiction. It could be like an unwillingness to forgive a parent or somebody who really did you wrong and you say like, no, I'm holding in my heart. It's my right to withhold forgiveness from this person. You know, you can, you can, you can put your kids in front of Jesus, you know. It confronts that very issue in this passage. A few weeks ago, I was talking with, um, with an international who was uh, returning to their home country. And um, they were considering, they, they had some real powerful encounters with Jesus, and they were considering whether they ought to get baptized before they went back to their home country. And um, uh, they kind of thought, maybe I don't want to do this, because um, I'm a part of the Communist Party, and I could lose my job that I've been working. I've been working to get in this career my whole life, super educated person, right? And uh, I know that I've met Jesus. I know there's something real there. But if I go back and I do this, I could lose my job. I'd have to kind of like be underground in some sort of way or whatever. And they were wrestling with, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, and, and they were sad about it. They were sad about this decision, right? It was very real to them in a way that it might not be real to us here in the United States, right? We hear the gospel, and we're like, hey, sure, like, sounds like a free ticket to heaven to me, right? But, you know, the advantage that she had, you know, the advantage, I, I told her this, I said, you have an advantage, and it's the same advantage that this rich young ruler had. They can't be deceived into thinking that Jesus is going to just let them Keep their idol alongside of him. Right? So right away, that gets confronted. Right away, they have this decision. Right away, they know they can't build half a tower. Right? That's what Jesus says. He says, you know, it, 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 there's a greater army coming up against you. You either, like, surrender or, or you run or you fight or whatever. But he wants, he wants us to know that it's, it's a surrender to God's kingship in our life that he's after. Are you going to let Jesus challenge the place that this idol has in your life? Or are you going to go away sad? That's what this man did. He went away sad. So this man was wrong about Jesus. He was wrong about himself. And finally, he was wrong about salvation. Let's pick up from verse 24. It says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And I hope in light of the conversation we've been having here, um, we can see why this is true, why it's so difficult. And on top of this, um, I think that the temptation for the rich is, is not, just, not just to love their money, but to become prideful in a way of saying, and this is what God warned Israel about, of saying like, you know, my own strength and my own ingenuity and my own hard work got me all of this. And you forget all the unique blessings and advantages that God gave you along the way. And you don't glorify Him. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
put out of your mind that this is talking about some small gate in the temple that you have to get off your camel and maybe you can kind of squeak it through. Totally, uh, t- totally not true and totally like doesn't make sense with the context of the rest of this passage. So this is a very radical thing that he's saying. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Right, they're wondering. If this guy goes away grieving, who can be saved? If, if it's difficult for the rich... Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Right? What's impossible with man is possible with God. Is Jesus saying that with God it's possible for the rich to be saved? Yes. Yes. I mean, we just heard a story about that last week, right? We heard about Zacchaeus getting saved because of the power of God in his life, right? And, and, and it totally changed the way he thought about his money. He starts giving his money away. He starts paying people back, right? With God, it's possible. But Jesus is saying even more than this. He's saying that salvation is impossible for any, for any, poor, rich, whatever, apart from the grace of God. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's too heavy for us to lift. How could this be? None of us has a clean record to present to God. Do you? You know, we can't say to God, look at all these righteous deeds, look at this perfect record, I'm going to just bring this before you and you're going to be impressed with me. Right? All of us, just like the tax collector, have to at some point throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. Paul says in Romans 3, 23 through 24, for there is no distinction... There is no distinction among people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, they're made right with God by His grace as a gift. It's it's, it's a gift. It's something He gives to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So salvation is this gift. It's this gracious gift that God wants to give us. And, and faith isn't even, work, isn't even a work. It's just, it's just receiving that gift. That's how we receive that gift. It's by faith. According to the scriptures, salvation isn't earned. It's received. It's received by faith. He's the only one with the clean record. Amen? And he died as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. But as this very passage reminds us, we can't receive this gift from God if our hands are already full of idols. Right? We have to drop the idol from our hand. That's what scripture calls repentance. Right? Drop it, throw it, smash it, you know? John, John's big emphasis last week, smash the idol, do whatever you can. Don't let it be in like your peripheral vision where you're like, you know... <laughs> Repentance, just to, to, to drop the idol that's in your hand so that you might receive the gift of salvation that comes from God alone. Salvation involves these two things. Read the scriptures. Repentance and believing the gospel. Repentance prepares the way in order for you to receive the free gift of the gospel. Jesus wasn't picking on this rich young ruler. We're all called to abandon our idols. He was just told that right away. If you've never come to a point where you've had to like make a really, really tough decision between the Lord and something else that you really love, you're probably not a Christian. 
This guy just heard this right away. He received this extreme mercy from Jesus. We're called to love God more than anyone else. None of us can build half a tower. Jesus says this, I'll end with this, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and following. He says, if anyone would come after me, anyone, anybody who wants to follow him, anybody who wants to be a disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. It's another way of saying the call on this man is the same for us. He might not be specifically calling you to voluntary poverty, and maybe your specific idol isn't wealth, but he calls you to lose yourself that you might gain him. The rich young ruler, he seemed like he wanted to know. He seemed like a seeker. But when the truth challenged his life, he didn't really want to know, did he? Right? It's, it's, it's like the light was too bright and he wanted to just crawl back into the shadows. Jesus bids the whole world, the whole world, to come into the light, to drop the idol in your hand and to receive salvation that comes from God. And this might feel impossible for us when we think about how precious that idol is, when we think about the grip that it has on our life, but Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I know for me, there's been times when idols have had grips on my life, and, and I come to the end of my rope in terms of what my will could accomplish with that thing. All I could do was fall on God's mercy. All I could do is ask the people of God to pray for me. All I could do is seek Him in His Word and say, you've you got to transform me if I'm going to obey you in this. If I'm going to let this thing go, I'm going to need you. Because with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen.